welcome to Retrofitted. My name is Rebecca Godlove. This episode contains a warning for candid discussion of mental health conditions, including possible triggers for those conditions. Listener discretion is strongly advised. I realize you will be listening to this message on election day or after, so this is a hard one to create. I'm sitting at my dining room table right now after wrestling my sons to bed. Our kitten, Princess Zelda is going after my microphone. Its cover is small and fluffy, easy prey for a fierce little huntress. Soon she will snuggle into a little loaf next to my typing fingers, looking like a warm, purring roll of sourdough. The house is quiet except for the occasional buzzing of my phone, text messages from my best friend who is attending a Halloween party tonight. Next to me, there is a Star Wars wine glass full of peach sparkling water and just the tiniest glug of Moscato. I don't drink, I never have, but it's just fancy enough to make me feel like an elegant adult. It's the eye of the hurricane. Regardless of when you are listening to this, there are a few facts I feel are applicable, at least if you're living in the United States. The country is likely in chaos right now, either from the outcome of the election or an active challenge of that outcome or protesting the outcome, regardless of who actually won. Your social media feed is full of people gloating and people borderline apoplectic over the results. Your feed is also full of people who are trying their best to express very real concerns no matter who is in office. Both major parties leave much to be desired, and there are always large groups of people who slip through the gaps in policy, in healthcare, in the writing of laws and regulations. If I could see one thing happen after this election, after this dumpster fire of a year, it would be that we could all practice true, honest, genuine kindness. Politics are never, ever more important than people. Religion is never more important than people. Individual liberty is never more important than people. After nearly two years, I'm rounding out a reading of the full Bible, Old and New Testaments. Right now, I'm in the epistles, and so much of what Paul writes to the new believers is entirely applicable to the church today. In the books of both 2 Timothy and Titus, he describes in detail the way that Christians should treat others, especially those with whom they disagree. Paul tells young church leader Timothy in chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, Again, I say, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone, be able to teach, and be patient with difficult people. In Titus 3, verse 2, Paul reminds that believers must not slander anyone and must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. I don't know what friends you have, but I feel pretty confident in saying that I do not see a great deal of gentleness, patience, or humility in the news, on social media, or in person these last several months. I don't think I've ever seen more tone-deaf behavior in my life. I have a few friends who have been extremely cautious to monitor the conversations on their posts, on their own pages, to keep disagreements civil. But man, that must take a lot out of a person. It shouldn't be this hard. And it should almost go without saying that this year has been especially hard on those with mental health conditions. 
because election coverage is a trigger that's nearly impossible to avoid. It's in your mail, it's on TV, on Facebook, Instagram, it's on billboards, it's on promotional items, in lawns, on flags, at work, in some cases in churches, in your nightmares too, probably. I remember voting in 2016. It was before my official diagnosis of anxiety, but I knew I wasn't okay. Standing in a polling booth, actually shaking, my chest tight, fretting over my single solitary vote and its ramifications, disgusted by both candidates and torn up inside over trying to make the right choice for myself and the country, knowing that no matter what I did, I would either be supporting someone who was furthering multiple causes I didn't believe in or be throwing away my vote, so to speak. I want to close out this series on mental health with the words of people who have had similar struggles. Uh, maybe not in the voting booth necessarily, but they've had moments or days or even weeks of paralyzing indecision, of heart-racing panic attacks, or burning explosive anger and sizzling frustration over the smallest infractions. And they want you to know that these issues are not their choice. No one chooses an anxiety disorder. So thank you, all of you who chose to share your stories with me and my listeners. And for those of you who are not ready to share your story yet, that's okay. If and when you are, I'm listening. In early October of this year, I put out a very unscientific blanket request via social media. Anyone born between 1978 and 1988 who wanted to talk about their mental health journey could contact me. Some of the questions I asked included, what condition or conditions have you been diagnosed with? When were you diagnosed? What life events led you to get help, treatment, or a diagnosis in the first place? How has this condition affected your life? What was your reaction when you received the diagnosis? Was your condition ever misdiagnosed? What does your condition feel like? What is your current treatment plan and how does it help? How are your friends, family, job, and relationships affected by your condition? What do you wish that the general population knew about your mental health condition? The people who got back to me, incidentally only women, mostly moms, answered many of the above questions, some with page-long responses. Others chose to answer one or two questions, but all the insight helps, and I hope it paints a clearer picture for you of a frequently muddy, misunderstood subject. Some of the replies are edited slightly for length and or clarity. First, the story of my friend R. Of all the people who responded to me, I've known her the longest. Nearly 20 years now, but I swear neither of us look a day over 29, seriously. She's in a very difficult position right now. She lost her mother within the past few years, and as an only child, she is the sole caretaker for her father who has cancer. Because of this, she is unable to work and is currently unemployed, with her postgraduate schooling on hold as well. She has a lot to juggle in addition to trying to care for herself and her father. She has some serious thyroid problems that, in her words, take priority over her mental health. She was previously diagnosed with depression in 2005 after feeling poor and, and losing some of her zeal for grad school. Her diagnosis was amended to generalized anxiety disorder in 2018. 
She's not currently on a treatment plan, having had a disappointing experience with medication years ago. She feels that she likely needs therapy and is open to trying medication now, but doesn't know how that will pan out, considering her severe financial strain at the moment. She gave me an example of what she deals with on a regular basis. So in her words, between my dad's health the past couple of years and 2020, I'm not sure if I'm anxious because of those things or if my anxiety makes them worse. I have to force myself to go to the store right now and I won't do curbside because I feel like if I don't at least leave the house for groceries, I may never leave and end up with a lot of other mental issues. But even shopping can sometimes result in exhausting tears in the car when it's over. I've started wearing headphones to shop in an attempt to control my environment. When I asked about how her relationships were affected by her condition, she replied, immediate family has their own stuff, so they don't notice. Friendships sometimes suffer because I'm either inactive or cranky. Most recently, I had a mini breakdown in a group message over a small misunderstanding and then went radio silent for a couple of days because I was scared of the reaction to my outburst. My anxiety made it into a much bigger issue and when I shamefully returned, no one was actually upset and all I got was love, care, and concern. My classes are on hold because the thought of student teaching during a pandemic is too terrifying, so I've stalled with finishing my degree. She added, when I mentally check out, it's not because I don't care. It's because I'm scared to make the first move because rejection is terrifying. It's easier for me to do nothing than to have any type of confrontation. She also shared something profound when I asked how she would feel if she had not gotten a diagnosis for her condition. I'd think I was going crazy, she said. Regardless of how anxious I may feel, I can tell myself it's because of my anxiety. Naming it gives me some sense of control even when I don't feel in control. I can name it, give it a personality and a story. Without a diagnosis, I'd have internalized it more and it would be easy to believe that's just who I am instead of it just being something I suffer from. I actually love how she frames this. The anxiety is not who she actually is. It helps R to realize that's not her identity. That's so incredibly important to remember. And even when things feel out of control, it's a great way for her to ground herself and kind of regroup. Let's meet another friend who has a very different story to tell. Now, I have actually not met Becky P in person, but we share a mutual friend and we ended up connecting on Facebook. Her youngest son is about the same age as my oldest and they both love Pokemon, so there's an open door, right? Although Becky and I have very, very different hobbies, lifestyles, and belief systems, I love that she is a passionate advocate for her kids. She's a cat lady like myself and that she is absolutely unafraid of discussing her mental health. Her boldness is refreshing and a step in the right direction, I feel, regarding mental health awareness. Becky has been diagnosed with depression, severe anxiety, OCD, PTSD, mild agoraphobia, explosive anger disorder, though not all at the same appointment, and she frequently self-harmed as a teen. She states that at 15, she felt suicidal more days than not, hating herself and her life. She no longer enjoyed doing anything. Fortunately, her mom, who was an RN, confronted her one day about her failing grades and not caring. Becky took the first of many brave steps and told her mom how she'd been feeling. Mama got her some help. 
Now, not everyone has this kind of support, though, so Becky is fortunate that her mother had a habit of encouraging her kids to express their feelings. Had this not been the case, Becky's story may have been a tragically short one. I asked her about what she experiences on a daily basis. Her response, my depression is worse in winter months. I hate cold weather, the gloom, ice, and snow, and I hate Christmas. Between November and February, I'm usually at my worst. It makes me want to not go anywhere or do anything. I tend to wait until we basically run out of everything before I force a shopping trip on myself. My anxiety is year-round and feels like it's 24-7. I wake up feeling anxious with heart palpitations and nausea. It's the worst when I'm driving, going to new places, or meeting new people. When a panic attack happens, it feels crippling. My legs and hands shake and my feet and hands go numb. My vision gets blurry, I get nauseous, my mind races, my heart races, and I can't breathe. It makes it extremely hard to want to wake up in the morning and hard to sleep at night. I'm constantly feeling insecure and socially awkward. I'm self-conscious constantly, worried about everything. It's hard to get a job, meet new people, maintain relationships. My anxiety is so bad that I'm unable to drive on highways, parkways, or anything similar. That keeps me from being able to take jobs or go places unless my husband can drive us. I've lost friends and family members who have actually stated I'd be better off dead and even had a family member recommend that I do kill myself to put others out of misery from dealing with me. Let that sink in, please. A family member suggested suicide. Instead, Becky tries her best to be a present, functional wife, mom, and friend. Her personal treatment plan includes two different medications daily and therapy weekly, although she knows her condition has cost her friends and family. In her words, people who don't understand mental illness or believe in it don't want to hear about it. They are real, and I am real, and I try hard daily to make myself capable of being okay enough to be considered normal. Something she's proud of? She says, I've overcome the stigma of mental illness and of the meds that go with them. I'm no longer ashamed to talk about any of it or worried what people will think of me if they know I need meds. I've had people immediately want to talk about their mental health or their meds, which is great, but I'm sure people assume I'm weak, lazy, unwilling to try to be okay without meds, or that I use my diagnosis as a crutch. I just want people to know it's okay to admit to not being okay. You don't have to pretend to be sunshine and rainbows if you don't feel that way. Your feelings are valid and so are mine. You don't have to believe in mental illness, but you do need to respect that it's real, and so are those of us who deal with it. Becky continues to fight for awareness and acceptance, and I do hope that I get to meet her in person someday. Another friend who preferred her anonymity lives in the South Hills area of Pittsburgh. She describes her condition in a physical sense. Like, my heart is going to blow out of my chest and I'm going to throw up everywhere. My face and ears turn red. I feel like I'm going to faint. I feel like my heart is going to explode. I'm scared and definitely panicked. It's constant. Definitely with Zoloft, it's not near as bad. When I see others who clearly have anxiety but might not know it, I'll reach out and share my story. I have a few different support groups I use depending on what's triggered my anxiety. I just like to let the person know that they're not alone and there are people out there to help. There is such a stigma attached to mental illness. Not everybody understands, and truly, unless you suffer from it, you never can. I know the people very close to me have either been supportive or unsupportive. 
I don't go out there broadcasting my anxiety because I have fear that it can come back and haunt me in the future. I love that this friend is open to being aware of the signs of mental distress in others and is willing to start a conversation. That goes far in breaking down its stigma. But I also love the way she describes her fear of her words coming back to haunt her. I think a lot of us with anxiety or depression in particular feel haunted. Even on good days, so to speak, there is an ominous wisp on the horizon, a panic attack around the corner, a trigger, an upcoming anniversary of a difficult event. There's always something out there. Last, I want to share the story of Julie. Julie is another individual that I don't know personally, but we've connected via social media and found we had a great deal in common. Now, Julie has been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, anxiety, and depressive disorder. Her story is complex, especially because she identifies as a woman of faith, but did not receive any relief from pastoral counseling, instead learning that her conditions required management through medication. Regarding what she feels like on a daily basis, everything is affected, she says. I snap at my family when I'm anxious. I pull away from friends when I'm depressed, even though the loneliness makes the depression worse. I don't really have hobbies anymore because I can't focus on anything. It takes forever to accomplish anything. My anxiety gets out of control and my ADHD takes over. I've lost a lot of friends. It makes dealing with normal events difficult. I'm always questioned about why I'm not my outgoing self when I'm having issues. I'm on three different medications. I was seeing a counselor, but finances and time are an issue. The meds help a lot, but I still have psychotic breakthroughs. They also make me physically ill to the point of vomiting sometimes. She adds, there's a huge financial burden of paying for a psychiatrist every three months and all the medications. Counseling is really expensive because it's once a week and not all insurance pays for a portion of it. I had to fight through the church's opinion on mental illness and the lies I'd been told that I just wasn't close enough to Jesus. Pause a moment. I briefly addressed this in the last episode, but let's revisit it. Anxiety and anxiety disorders are not the same. A state of worry or distress that is temporal, that can be overwhelming but still managed, is the anxiety most frequently referred to in scripture. Anxiety disorders are not the same and need to be addressed differently, often with therapy, medication, or other treatments. Julie wants people to know that it's hurtful to hear people call the weather bipolar because it changes. She goes on, bipolar disorder isn't a joke. People need to stop using it flippantly. She also wants people to know that individuals with bipolar disorder don't have any control over their symptoms, even when on medication. Just because someone is being erratic doesn't mean they stop taking their meds. They're more likely to stop taking their meds during a depressive episode instead of a manic one because the thought is, the meds aren't working anyway, why take them? They need people to stick with them. People need to be just there and not give advice. Being told that life is good and we shouldn't be depressed just makes the depression worse. I could go on and on, she concludes. I asked about how people react to her conditions and honestly, her response was disheartening. I've dealt with a lot of people exiting my life because of it. Some people welcome me with open arms because they don't have any preconceptions of what it is, but mostly people are afraid to be friends with someone who has a mental illness. It's probably intimidating. She also adds, having a mental illness is not a result of not having a good relationship with Jesus. 
Pastors and church counselors are not trained or equipped to treat someone with a mental illness. The church needs to be more accepting of people with mental illness and not blame them for their disorder. That is what this entire series has been coming down to, my friends. Listen, I love so much of what I'm seeing in the church right now. And my actual physical church, rather than the universal church, the church at large, I am seeing young people be discipled and loved and mentored by adults who've been through hell and back and who want to make sure that kids don't have to learn everything the hard way. I am seeing people of all ages reaching out and partnering with other local ministries, donating to food pantries, crocheting protective mats for the homeless in our area, being willing to help financially and emotionally support moms and their babies after the babies are born, not just while they're in the womb. That's a big thing for me, the difference between pro-birth and pro-life. They aren't the same, but that's another topic for another day. And I know that my church family is not alone. Individual churches are realizing that the history of the church as a whole really has been filled with a lot of mistakes and it's time to start to set things right. It's beautiful and brave to admit when you've been wrong because it shows teachability, growth, humility, and maturity. But the thing we keep tripping over is mental health. Almost as soon as anxiety is mentioned or depression, we want to toss it on the fiery altar and pray it away. Which, I mean, of course, in dealing with anything that hinders us, yes, we want to be rid of it so that we can live our lives to the fullest. But what I'm saying is the thing is we kind of suck at follow-up. As the church, as the hands and feet of Jesus, the hands and feet that bled for others, we need to be willing to sit down with that mom quietly suffering from postpartum depression. <laughs> Make sure that coffee she's drinking hasn't already gone cold and you know, ask her how we can help. We on our own can't heal or cure her, but we can help her manage her struggles and her symptoms. Or we can text that teen who we know has been battling loneliness since his grandmother passed away. As we might open a door for a fellow shopper on crutches at the mall or drop off homemade chicken soup for a friend with the flu, there are absolutely ways we can help those afflicted with mental health conditions live better lives. I just read to you a dozen or more from actual people who are afflicted. And if you really have no idea how to help your loved one, sit down and just ask them. If they really don't know what to tell you, I promise you this. Your presence and your concern really does make a difference. It might be the thing that keeps them going another day. And the next day might be the one that changes their life. You will have made all the difference because you showed up. Thank you for taking the time to join me today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can reach me at retrofittedpodcast at gmail.com, my website at retrofitted.podbean.com, or my Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash retrofittedpodcast. If you're listening via iTunes, please consider leaving a review so that others can enjoy this series too. If you are considering financially supporting this podcast and its associated endeavors, please visit patreon.com slash Rebecca Godlove. As always, be wise and be well. Theme song is Lift It Up by Ryan Anderson. <laughs>